Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the We're in the Money edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, July 3rd. We've come into some cash this week here in the Press Gallery. We have a billion-dollar budget surplus. There's a forthcoming dollar hike in the minimum wage. Raises for all journalists! Hooray! All that plus new poll data that shows many Albertans may be suffering a little bit of buyer's remorse since that May 5th fire sale. But as always, I promise we will try to give you the best bang for your buck. Here in the studio, before they move into a higher tax bracket, we have reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. And Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. You all look fantastic. Thank you. As always. (laughs) I'd like to start with that billion-dollar budget surplus, which was accompanied by this strange sort of reluctant dance on the part of Finance Minister Joe Sisi. Miriam, how did that surplus announcement go down? Um, Yeah, a little differently than past surplus. Plus, well, sorry, a little differently than past annual reports. Uh, Usually what happens is you you get the report and then there's a news conference, usually with the finance minister. In past years, that's how it would go. And they'd say, hooray, look at this. We have all of this money. This is fantastic. It's something they want to stand up in front of cameras and, and, and talk about. This time around, it was a little bit different because, of course, we have a new party in government. And so, yeah, it's true. As Graham said in his column, they were a little bit reluctant to give us a minister or somebody to sort of speak for the government about this annual report and about fiscal year and financials because I think uh, for, for that obvious reason that, that this surplus is a PC surplus. This is the surplus that came out of the budget that Doug Horner tabled when Alison Redford was still premier way back in March 2014. So, you know, the NDP really has nothing to to boast about uh, in terms of this money. And so I think that's a part of where the, the reluctance came from. They, they didn't really know how to respond. And Graham, you, you wrote a column, as Miriam said, about the reasons Joe Sisi might be hedging. Um, were you at all surprised the way he played it? Or is this sort of necessary well, ambivalence? At first, I was surprised. We thought we'd get the finance minister. It's, it's obviously an annual report. But as Miriam said, he was reluctant. And this is last year's budget. Just to be really, really clear to people, it gets confusing. This was a budget that went from April 1st of 2014 to March 31st of this year. This is the old budget. We finally get the new numbers now before the end of June. They're supposed to give us the numbers for last year, and it it came down to a billion-dollar surplus. There's roughly about half that in the the projection last year, so they got a billion dollars, plus there's $8.2 billion in the contingency account, which is our rainy day cash account. Tons of money. And this was left to us by the PC government. So the NDP, they didn't want to really talk about it. They said, look, that was theirs. We're going to move ahead. But I think that the main problem is the optics politically. You're going to have now moving forward the PCs saying, you know, the NDP, we, we gave them a billion-dollar surplus, our last budget. It was balanced. And their first budget's got a, a huge hole in it. It's a gigantic deficit. What they're going to forget to tell us <laughs> is that in the budget that Prentice brought down that was never passed this March, he had a... $5 billion deficit. The biggest the in history. Going forward. So this year, 2015-16, it's going to have a deficit. We know that. The NDP said that. The PC even wrote it down and their budget never actually passed. The Wild Rose admitted to be a big deficit going forward this year. Politically, it's going to be the PC saying, we had a surplus, you guys have a deficit, and that's going to be an issue for the NDP moving forward because people have short memories. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think on this one, it would have been even if the Prentice had won the election, he'd have trouble dealing with this one. He was se selling Absolutely. Mr. Doom and Gloom for months before the election, months before the election. And that's why he was going to do this generational change and shift the tax thing. So even if he was there, he would have a hard time explaining this to people who thought, oh, my God, we have a $7 billion hole. We're really in trouble. Well, we weren't actually in trouble yet. And we will be going forward, apparently. But I, I, I think it's really uh, it, it's going to be curious to see how the Tories do do play it in their opposition role because uh, the, the doom and gloom message started with Prentice and he really played that strongly in his cards in the election campaign. It's not quite so easy just to say, well, that was, you know, that was then, this is now. They, they do have that legacy to deal with. Oh, I know, I'm just saying. The, uh, the optics of this are, are hard for anybody, for anybody oh, in there because... It's interesting as well is that um, you're right, you go back to January um, this gets confusing. I'll try to make it as clear as possible. Um, even for the that 2014-15 year, you're right. Prentice was saying it's going to be a, a deficit yeah. this year, yeah, he's a, a $500 million deficit, and it turned into a billion-dollar surplus. surplus. So, yeah, it would have been a problem for him to explain it. And the problem is you've got politicians trying to ramp down expectations. That's another reason the NDP wasn't getting into this, because they're trying to tell people, look, things are going to get bad this year. There'll be a deficit this year. So that, that billion dollars there, that's that's last year's. I think people are going to get more cynical about this, though. I mean, they heard about the bitumen bubble from from Redford, Redford and that yeah. disappeared into, oh, a billion dollar surplus. Yeah. Then we heard doom and gloom from Prentice. And I just I think the poor voters just must be feeling kind of mistreated here because they're always hearing doom and gloom. They're hearing about tax increases. And there are many reasons we may need them, and it's possibly a problem going forward. But I don't know. I just I think they must be really confused out there. Well, they should be a little more confused, even with Joe Sisi sort of echoing some similar sort of refrains from the previous administration of the roller coaster and other revenue sources. So obviously, there's going to be some changes potentially for from the royalty review. Could we also be looking at more tax hikes to address this upcoming doom and gloom? <laughs> I hope not. Who knows? <laughs> I, well, at this uh, point, it seems unlikely, but... Not this soon, I don't think. Happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that if the, we were going to see something like that, you see it at the beginning, right? At the beginning of, of a government's term. And, and we've we've seen them already sort of push through some of the things that might be unpopular with with some segments of the voting population. You know, and I think the next hurdle is going to be that royalty review. And, you know, we don't really know how long that process is going to take. It, we, we've got sort of the first steps of it outlined for us, but not in very much detail. So we don't really know how long that's going to take. And I suspect it's going to take quite a while going forward. So I, I figured that there's going to be a lot of focus there. And I imagine throwing new taxes into the mix down the road would <laughs> would be a recipe for some turmoil for I the government. There's two issues too going ahead as they have to deal with this coming deficit that we think is coming. <laughs> and then Notley, if she wants to, you raise this question of the roller coaster revenues, getting off oil, roller coaster oil revenues is a structural problem, right? And we don't know how they're going to deal with that or how far they're going to go down that road. That leads to the issues of how much you're going to save, how much you're going to put in the heritage fund and all those kind of things. We don't really know where that's going yet. I'm sure she's not going to address that right away because she's got too many, she's going to have too many immediate problems. Another thing tied into this whole idea of, of uh, taxes, they're raising the corporate tax rate uh, as of July 1st. And also um, they announced last week a doubling of the levy on carbon emissions from $15 to $30 being phased in. So there's two hits there for corporations. And then you've got the panel being put together on climate change. So there's a lot of things going on out there that's going to impact on corporations potentially. So you, you wonder, do they want to add, add another tax in there somewhere along, along the way? 
it's doubtful because uh, they're trying to reduce emissions, but not at the expense of actually shutting down companies. Hmm. The other big announcement uh, this week is was the hike to the minimum wage. Again, this is one of those policies that the NDP promised, uh, ran on, and are implementing. Some pundits were su- suggesting this might be the political debate this next few years, equality versus economy. Do you think of minimum wage as a political victory or a liability? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Graham knows best. I'm just going to leave it with Graham. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I think people are right when they say that this is a debate that is going to be something that the government's going to have to deal with, obviously, over several years, because this is going to be a phased-in policy, right? We're seeing the beginning of it now. Lori Sigurdsson, um, last week when she was talking about the minimum wage increase, she talked about it as, you know, this is a very measured way to do it. We're phasing it in. We're going to increase it slowly over time so that we can see what the effects are, but we're still going to get to $15 by 2018. They're very firm on that promise. And so how they get there is what's in question and sort of how they deal with all of the pushback and controversy over those next three years is going to be really interesting because that is, if anything, is going to be something that is is sort of a perpetual issue that the government's going to have to deal with and close to the next election also, right? And so it'll be very interesting to see how different their tone is today versus you know, three years from now. The peril for her in this is if we do go into a recession and she's still raising the minimum wage, it reminds me of Ed Stelmet getting caught like that in the mm-hmm. royalty increases. Absolutely. As soon as he increases royalties, there's a big downturn and his policy's a mess. On the other hand, it was uh, institutions as radical as the TD Bank a couple of years ago put out a report saying that wealth disparity in Alberta was the highest. And that at some point does become an issue in, in a, any economy. And so there's, there's interesting policy debate around this issue. When we had the highest cost economy in the middle of a boom, it made a lot more sense than if we're in the middle of recession. Right, which is hence my answer, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, it yes is you're right, both. Graham. Yeah. Political victory, it was, because yeah. he actually got this through. And, and Sheila is dead on this. The parallels here with Stelmac could be eerie in the sense that if the economy was to improve, let's say the price of oil went up, price of oil went up to you know, $100 again in the next few years, economy is ticking along, no one will really care about the wage being increased. But if the economy tanks and we have a recession and it drags on, the price of oil remains really low, people will start to point to all the things the NDP has done and blame them for layoffs, blame them for the price of oil being so low. Minimum wage was a bad idea, they'll be saying. People got uh, you know too much. They couldn't, the, the companies couldn't afford it, began laying off people. So it all depends on the economy. And in politics, luck is half the battle. And on Canada Day, results from uh, mainstream technologies poll show support for the NDP is indeed flagging, maybe because of this sort of prognostications we're hearing and uh, potential recession. People are generally supportive of the government's actions. Calgary appears to be pining for the days of the PCs. Rural Alberta is blooming with love for the wild rose. Uh, Do you put much stock in these polls, this honeymoon is over narrative, or is this just a case where only the angry people are picking up the phone? You know, I I have to say, I found it hard to say the honeymoon is over. I wasn't surprised at Calgary. It's the city's divided, right? Of course, they elected lots of new Democrats, but they're not they're not like Edmonton politically that way. I thought maybe it reflected more concern about the economy than anything else. And the fact, you know, is she going too fast? Well, actually, I think she's gaining points for actually carrying out her agenda. How many times have we seen PC governments come in and then actually they don't follow through on a lot of promises? So I I have to say I was a bit skeptical of it, but I think her personal approval rating is still going to be very high. 
Well, which it's is still a big the highest. Yeah, it's still, still the highest. highest so I, the party leaders, I, even though it did take a bit of a hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts. It'll be interesting to see how that support either wanes or grows over over the next few months and into the next session, because that's when the really heavy lifting has to start. That's when they table their first budget, and I think we'll have a better sense yeah. of whether mm-hmm. people approve of their policies and the way that they're implementing them when we see a full budget tabled and a really full, robust legislative session with more bills being passed past more people may be perhaps paying attention to the ministers in question period um you know and perhaps they'll be a bit more comfortable in their roles too as government and so we might be we might get a better sense of of who they really are and of course the federal election coming up too will probably play a dynamic in in popularity yeah well and also those personal income tax changes don't come into effect until october the minimum wage comes into effect in october so it'll just be interesting to see how those things impact people's opinions of of the government in conjunction with the budget and how the the federal election plays out god there's a lot of factors uh but yeah that that's that's sort of where i'm looking and where the oil price is going to be then yeah Yeah, no i agree with sheila's talking about this was People get grumpy in Alberta when the economy is going down. People get grumpy, get grumpy everywhere, <laughs> anywhere, like Greece, for example, when the economy is, is going badly. Yeah, and of course, they're bringing in some, some ideas that people don't like. And I think you're right as well. I think the answer is sort of yes to both your questions again, that people um, are a little grumpy. And also, um, you tend to hear from people who are grumpy on the phones, you know, that, that actually are angry. But again, it's four years for the next election. So we'll see what happens. You look at the numbers, though, in Edmonton, the NDP is still really popular, and Notley is, I think it was 75%. Yeah, she's approval. quite high, and the party was at about 60 So Yeah, and yeah. you see a, a division here between Edmonton and the rest of the province. We saw that in the election. There was some vote splitting. But anyway, having said all that, this, to me, is not surprising at all. And in a way, it almost reflects the election. I, I know even though... They got 40% of the NDP in the election. It's 26%, I think, in the uh, this new, newest poll. But it does show a lot of Albertans out there don't, didn't really like the NDP to begin with, and now they're saying, aha, I told you so. But, you know, give it time. We'll see how it works out. I think we should do the poll after she's ridden in the Stampede Parade, which is today, <laughs> and flip those burgers at the Stampede Grounds. They're going to love her. <laughs> apparently apparently, she has some skill, some uh, equestrian skill from her days up north. Uh, oh, does yeah, she? Yeah, does she get to wear a white hat? That's my question. <laughs> I think it's mandatory. Obviously, the provincial election is a far distant thought, but how important is that uh, by-election coming up uh, in the fall in Calgary Foothills? We don't. We have no date yet, just so we know. They've got to call this by November, I think. Yeah, by yeah. November, right. six months from the um, the election, election. when, um, when Mr. The Prentice yeah. stepped down. Yeah, this will be sort of a mini, maybe a referendum on the government. So it'll be tough for the NDP, I think, because you're going to have the PCs and the Wild Rose uh, hammering away at the government. And if these polls are correct, the NDP might not win this. It'll make things a bit interesting, I think, over the the fall, perhaps. But um, I'm not reading way too much into it, actually. Yeah, because, you know, let's remember, they can, there also can't be a whole lot of love for the PCs there, given that was Prentice's riding. And he's yeah. said to these people, even before the votes were all counted, I won't be there for you, even though he voted for me. So, <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of baggage the uh, Tories take going into this. But on the other hand, it's true it'll be after their first budget. So if the Wild Rose really wants to hammer their they're taxing you to death business that'll be the place yeah it'll be interesting to see because normally a by-election is like a weird an- anomalous yes, type of, yeah. of race where you know you often see it 
become a protest against the government, which we sort of saw happen in the general election last time. So I, I don't know how this one's going to turn out. Yeah, and I think it depends. Do they set the do they set that election uh, for November, which I think is the latest that they can do it mm-hmm. after the budget, or do they try to hold it earlier and do it before the budget, before all those things come down? I guess maybe that'll give us an indication as to how seriously the NDP. Yeah, because speaking it. of the budget, this budget will come down after the uh, federal election because the NDP in Alberta does not want to bring down a deficit budget that will then be used as a club to beat up the federal NDP. So the NDP wants to hold off on it until after the federal election. Big question is, who are the Tories going to get to run in that riding? (laughs) So we've come to the part of the podcast called Good Stuff from the Gallery. We each share something we've enjoyed, often but not always with a political connection. So Miriam, what do you have? Well, I have something that was in the Toronto Star last week, but I wasn't on the podcast last week, so I'm going to recommend something a little bit old. Deal with it. It's, uh, yeah, it was in the Toronto Star on June 25th. It was by Robert Benzi. Um, And my disclaimer about it being a little old is that the story's moved a little bit since this first piece was published. So uh, this one was called Revealed. The Kathleen Wynne documentary that can't be broadcast. I pay a little bit of attention, obviously, to Ontario politics where I grew up. So I was reading that uh, with great interest. It talks about this documentary that Kathleen Wynne, the premier of Ontario, starred in. You know, she won't sign the release papers for it. And so it wouldn't it wasn't going to be broadcast. The problem is there are some reporters that were interviewed for the documentary. So they knew it existed and (laughs) uh, were able to view it. And so Robert Benzi uh, wrote this really great piece, really basically giving you great great detail about the documentary to the point that I believe Kathleen Wynne has now said that she will sign the release papers and oh, the wow. documentary will be aired. I believe is how the, the story has progressed forward. So Graham, a book I'm reading. I have not finished it yet, but I'm still halfway through. It's a really good read. It's called Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice, written by a guy called Bill Browder, who is an American who became a British citizen, opened up the largest investment fund in Russia after the fall of communism, worth billions of dollars. And he's writing a book about what it was like working in Russia, making lots of money, but then he kept bumping up against the um, the oligarchs. And the corruption he's talking about became really bad. He took on the oligarchs, won some fights, and then they began pushing back. It got Putin involved. He was banned from Russia. They went after his assets. He had to sell the assets quietly, get them all out of Russia. His, his compatriots in Russia were, were arrested. Uh, they're raiding his, his offices. Eventually, his lawyer was arrested and put in jail and tortured and killed. It's a really fascinating look at the corruption in Russia under Putin and just how bad things have become there. I've been reading it now for two days. I've almost finished it. It's amazingly well written for somebody who's not, not a professional writer as yeah. well. And Sheila? Connected to Graham's, but 50 years earlier. (laughs) There's a a book by an Edmonton woman named Alla Tumanov, who was, at the age of 16, was arrested from high school. They were given show trials under the Stalin regime, thrown in the gulag where she survived for seven years. And then uh, about 15 years later, ended up immigrating to Edmonton, and she wrote a story about her experience. And uh, it's just a fascinating glimpse into... A terrible time uh, in Russia. It's it's just a shocking story, and she survived it. She's eighty two, still still going strong. Wow. Yeah. All these kinds of stories in Edmonton. Amazing story. Yeah. My good stuff this week comes from the National Post. It's an opinion piece by Brock Harrison, the former Wild Rose staffer, now communications director at a private communications firm. Harrison has reconfigured himself a bit as a political pundit, 
Uh, and he's written written some interesting pieces since the election. He openly questioned Daniel Smith's post-election floor-crossing revisionism. He applauded the NDP throne speech, but now he's lodged into a gently mocking admiration for Derek Fildebrandt, uh, the Wild Rose MLA and Canadian Taxpayer Federation spokesman, who still occasionally engages in less subtle confrontational styles. Fildebrandt posts memes of himself, speaks sternly and without a hint of irony. He is unabashedly partisan, but he's still part of the conversation, and that's Harrison's point. And with his columns, Harrison is still part of the conversation, too. <laughs> Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so subscribe today. For all those eagerly awaiting the podcast, I will try to have it ready by early Friday afternoon. I'm getting quicker at this. Want to connect via Facebook? Check out the journal's Facebook page. We're also all on Twitter. Thank you, Graham, Miriam, and Sheila for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week and we'll discuss what we're going to do with all that extra cash. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.